This is episode 183 of the IDRA Class Notes Podcast. Specifically to my content, which is English, let's say a teacher was fortunate enough to be trained in how to kind of have a more culturally sustaining approach to their lesson planning, yet the texts that they're given, you open it up, there's a hundred texts in there, there's only two by Latino, Latina authors, only one by a Mexican-American. So now that first-year teacher has to do additional work to find other texts, unless there's been money put towards ordering books that are not typically the ones that would have been ordered, then that teacher, again, is not able to branch out and do that. Hello, everybody, and welcome to IDRA's podcast series. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, with Andres Lopez, who is a high school English teacher here in San Antonio, Texas, and has also taught in Austin, Houston, and Boston, primarily at Title I schools, on a very difficult but necessary topic titled Institutionalized Discrimination in K-12 Education. So welcome, Andres, to IDRA's podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. So before we get into it, I know some of our listeners might be wondering, well, what is institutionalized discrimination? What are some examples of that going on in our schools? So certainly everybody knows typically what, you know, intentional discriminatory acts and laws and policies might be, those that are unfairly and unjustly targeting or excluding people of color. It might be based on their race, their sex, their gender, national origin, religion, or disability. It could be a number of other factors. But how about when those direct policies don't exist? What about when it's become a pattern and practice or their their behaviors and actions of state and public institutions. And this is when we start discussing and, and differing, you know, about how institutionalized discrimination may continue to exist after several years. You know, we've overcome, you know, the Jim Crow laws in some respects, but in many other respects, as Michelle Alexander's groundbreaking book on the new Jim Crow has shown, as well as Richard Rothstein's book on the color of law, noting uh, issues in housing and, and the impact in education and discrimination continuing in our schools and in our communities. Well, how is it that you know this can continue today? And we can kind of get an example of this if we look at teachers. So if we look at teachers all across the country, and their racial demographics, about 82% of the teachers are non-Hispanic white. That leaves only about 18% teachers of color. And that compares to the demographics today where over one half of our students today are students of color. And so I was wondering, Andres, if you might be able to share, you know, some of your own experiences of how the teacher hiring practice and the factors that maybe, you know, some of the interviews look at from your own experiences, what you've seen and how they might be lending themselves to this uh, continuing pattern of us not having very many teachers of color in the field. Okay. Well, I've been obviously on the end of being the person being interviewed. And because a lot of bigger districts want to avoid, I guess, any sign of not being fair to one candidate or another, they have often set questions. And I've seen this in a lot of districts, you know, and even when I've sat in interviews and I've thought about putting another question out there that's kind of more tailored towards, you know, serving the students at our school that uh, might be different than what 
other schools might want to ask, I'm told, you know, it's best that we stick to these set questions. And so that I already find kind of boxes in what we can ask candidates and what we can find out from them. So that, on that side, that's always been interesting. But then on the other side, being interviewed, I find that very rarely have I been asked about my ability to relate to students. I've been asked about my ability to reach students, but that's not the same thing. And I think um, you and I have talked about with the culturally relevant or culturally responsive pedagogy, I think if teachers are encouraged to know how to answer that question and to truly understand that, I think that that would allow for schools to better gauge whether teachers have thought about the culture of the school that they're trying to work at. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's critical, you know, the Equity Assistance Center, IDRA operates the Equity Assistance Center South, which is one of four federally funded regional equity assistance centers uh, that help school districts meet the civil rights challenges of today. And oftentimes we run into school districts that say, hey, look, we have a colorblind approach. We don't see color when people come in, but then they have these boilerplate questions and sometimes, you know, some of the questions reflect test scores and achievement in school, which might be, you know, one factor, but then we are not asking teachers who are going to be going into many of these schools that are incredibly diverse, but you're not discovering what their own relevant experience is and, you know, in teaching diverse students, but not just teaching them, but reaching them and relating to them, as you mentioned here. So let's talk a little bit about the transition you know, so once you get a teacher, once you hire a teacher, and let's say you do engage in more appropriate, expansive recruitment, hiring, and retention policies that will help diversify the field. But now once they get in the classroom, then what happens? Are they able to hashtag reach and teach all students? Are they able to relate with those students? Can you tell us what some of the challenges that you see in the field? Well, I can talk to early on with my teaching and then when I see a lot of teachers coming in, there's so many things that teachers are trying to develop and master in the classroom that often when it comes to to content and they're relying on resources the school already has or teachers that already have lesson plans put together. And that's kind of important for new teachers to be able to do that because they've got other things, discipline management, um, just kind of the whole emotional demand on them. So they're dealing with that. And so often what happens is they lean on the school or the district curriculum for the content. The issue with that is if the school hasn't made a priority to alter or to start to expand the curriculum or the content, then they're stuck with, I guess, texts that maybe are no longer um, relevant or, or, or ideas, lessons uh, to the students of today. And that's not just unique to ethnicity, class. Sometimes that's also just kind of changing demographics with technology or, or access to other resources. But specifically to my content, which is English, you see that in immediate challenge. Let's say a teacher was fortunate enough to be trained in how to kind of have a more culturally sustaining approach to their lesson planning yet the text that they're given, like the, the state textbook, you open it up and there's a hundred texts in there. There's only two by Latino, Latina authors, only one by Mexican-American. So now that, that first-year teacher has to do additional work to find other texts to bring in. And then that compounds when you start saying, okay, well, we're going to read a novel and now you're trying to access a book room. Again, unless there's been money put towards ordering books that are not typically the ones that would have been ordered, they're not typically part of the original canon of texts, then that teacher, again, is not able to branch out and do that. 
So it yeah, takes a lot of allies along the way for it to work. And first-year teachers or early teachers, they, they're not necessarily ready or able to build that network, and nor should they have to build that network on their own. You know, that's a lot to ask of somebody coming in. Teachers that are able to do that, they usually come in already with a lot more agency, a lot more connections and allies. Yeah, and I think that what's interesting is, you know, sometimes some school administrators, whether it's superintendents or principals, might be fearful of, you know, oh, well, you're wanting to indoctrinate people based on your own point of view. But what they really miss, you know, through our EAC South, we provide a lot of training on culturally responsive instruction and teaching, is about how socially and academically empowering uh, culturally responsive teaching practices can have, you know, that kind of impact they can have on socially, emotionally, and being more politically comprehensive uh, is some of the dimensions of culturally responsive teaching. And I think that they don't realize that by doing, you know, essentially the status quo, they may be doing a disservice to the students because this kind of deeper learning can lead to much better critical thinkers out there by having different perspectives. Is that something that you've experienced as well? Absolutely. I think firsthand, you know, one of the things that I try to remind myself and sometimes other teachers is that we're not representative of the majority of the students. I mean, if we're teaching this content, that means we love that content. We already have a degree, some of us uh, graduate degrees. And then if we look at, you know, the, the Chicano Chicana education pipeline, we see out of 100 Chicano students, how few of them are finishing a four-year degree and going to grad school and so forth, then clearly those of us that have made it, we can't just think about, well, this is what, what worked or this is I survived or this is what I needed to do. We've got to think, well, what about these other students? What was missing? And so one thing that works in my favor is that I did in high school and early on in college really struggle. I started to resist some of the things we were learning. I started to feel alienated. So I'm always very aware of what that can do to students. I consider myself someone who had a lifelong love of English, but there was a time where I really just felt like it wasn't doing anything for me. And if it wasn't for a few teachers kind of letting me branch out and kind of pushing some things outside of the standard curriculum, then that might have been kind of a lifelong choice, and it would have affected the trajectory of me as far as my academic mindset, my belief in my ability to succeed in school and and, in things that I was passionate about. So I've seen that manifested very much in that way where teachers or schools feel that these are texts or these are things that students need to know, right, which is the kind of the way that they, they're able to hold the line of this is the canon, this is how we've got to do things, not willing to concede that, that some of those things obviously need to stay, but you can actually enhance the student's understanding of that. Let's say if we talk about history, you know, here in Texas, students often understand, quote-unquote, U.S. history, American history better if they also learn another side of that history. A lot of students are able to take a Mexican-American studies history class. They're actually getting U.S. history twice, and they're starting to understand the complexity of it at another level. And so we're not only asking them to just completely buy the one-sided Alamo narrative that's very popular here in San Antonio, and you already have a lot of students that already don't buy that. You're, You're not asking them to pretend that there's not a layer to it that we all know is there, you're bringing that layer in and you're allowing for diverse perspectives and diverse interactions and also for uh, kind of a deeper understanding of the content. And so I find that a lot of teachers and a lot of people in positions of academic leadership, when you can show them the results, and that's one of the things I've been trying to do, and I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit, a lot of times I have found that I need to experiment 
almost cheat my classroom, still doing everything I'm supposed to do, but take some experiments with what we cover or how we cover it, and then use that information to persuade people that are persuadable or interested in that idea, they're just not ready to take the chance. For some students, it can be a make or break or transformative experience. And that's, those are the students that I'm always focused on trying to reach. Yeah. So we got about a minute left. I was hoping that you might be able to share a little bit about what you're doing there at your current school and helping, you know, the freshman English teachers and expanding the AP coursework that you've been doing through your work. Yes, I've been very fortunate to have support at every level here at the school that I'm at, at Stevens and in the district, to start the first Mexican-American literature high school class in San Antonio. And what that's allowed me to do is have a class solely focused on literature created by Mexican-American authors, and then take the experiences that students are having with that literature and having students share this experience with teachers and other content and also sharing it with other teachers that I work with and convincing them and showing them that a lot of these stories would work in your English 3 American literature class, in your freshman AP or on-level classes where the teaks are open and you can insert different texts. And when they see how students respond to that, very often they are uh, on board. They're interested. They come to me. They want more access to more information, more access to more text. So then that puts me in a position where now I want to be ready for that. And I feel like that's – I'm glad that at the university level in San Antonio, we've got a lot of partners and, and IDRA and, and um, MALDEF and just, just other organizations that work together to try to put people together that can make this happen as when teachers are ready to take those chances and kind of branch out. All right. Well, great. Thanks very much for joining us today, Andres. It's exciting to hear about the work that you're doing. You know, so many times uh, teachers don't get the appreciation, the gratitude that they certainly deserve and, you know, promising, aspiring. And teachers like yourselves who are very well accomplished already in helping to lead the pathways for others, you know, behind them is certainly inspirational. So we thank you very much. And again, should you need any services from the IDRA Equity Assistance Center South in uh, this area in addressing institutionalized discrimination in K-12 public education, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can also find more information about Andres's program on our website. So thank you very much. We look forward to hearing more from you in the future, Andres. Thank you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.